When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the amazing news from Korea about the prospects for peace there. Bruce Cummings, our man on Korea, will explain everything. And we're still thinking about James Comey. We'll have comment from Elizabeth Drew, the legendary Washington journalist. But first, Trump's greatest vulnerability. It may not be Russiagate, but rather his financial crimes. And for that, we turn to David K. Johnston. He's an award-winning investigative journalist who's followed Trump for nearly 30 years. He won a Pulitzer Prize at the New York Times. Now he's editor-in-chief of dcreport.org. He also writes for The Nation and other publications, and he's a frequent guest on MSNBC. His books include The Making of Donald Trump and, more recently, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. It's just published by Simon & Schuster. I spoke with him last week in Los Angeles. Some people have been saying that what will bring Trump down is not the political crimes around the Trump campaign's involvement with Russian collusion, not the constitutional issues around the travel ban, not even the obstruction of justice around firing the head of the FBI. What will bring him down is the criminal issues, especially the financial issues, the money issues, and that the FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office and homes is the key to all this. You know more about Trump's criminal and financial offenses than anybody except for Michael Cohen. What do you think about this argument? Well, first of all, the idea that Donald Trump is going to be impeached is just a fantasy, barring something we haven't seen that's totally unexpected, because it takes two-thirds of the Senate, 67 members, to convict upon impeachment, which is only a charge. And it would require more than a dozen Republicans. And as you've seen, the Republicans have no interest in this whatsoever. Now, Trump is uh, very vulnerable on a whole host of criminal issues. And Robert Mueller and the team he's assembled are as good as it gets when it comes to being prosecutors. But we also have a Justice Department regulation that you cannot indict a sitting president. The Constitution doesn't prohibit it, but a Justice Department regulation does. One thing we may see is Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator. And a question people should think about is, if Donald Trump takes the Fifth Amendment when he is questioned by a grand jury, will that be accepted by the Republicans? Because if it is, that's the end of the rule of law in this country. You cannot, as President of the United States, take the Fifth Amendment to avoid self-incrimination, or you shouldn't be able to. As a matter of law, you're entitled to, but you should have to resign as president because, as Donald Trump himself said, if you take the Fifth Amendment, in his view, you've admitted you've committed a crime. Now, it's not true that taking the Fifth Amendment means you've committed a crime, but since Trump set that as his standard, then he will have admitted he's a criminal. 
So let's look at the raid on Michael Cohen and how much the FBI can learn. First of all, in order to get into a lawyer's office, you have to meet a very high standard. What do you think the FBI lawyers told the federal judge they expected to find there? Executing a search warrant against any lawyer, some two-bit lawyer in Temecula or East Texas, is going to be reviewed by the Attorney General, or in this case, the Deputy Attorney General, because Attorney General Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions has recused himself from Russia matters. In this case, the prosecutors could not run the risk that they would encounter a magistrate who would decline to issue the search warrant. So they, I'm sure, when we see the search warrant affidavits and other materials, we will find out that Michael Cohen was being tailed, that they had photographs of him going in and out of meetings. They may well have had intercepts of his telephone conversations and intercepts of his emails. They probably have emails from people he was in communication with. They have people whose names we haven't heard who could be secretaries or clerks uh, uh, who have provided information. But they went into whatever magistrate approved this search warrant with such a compelling and overwhelming case that the most troglodyte, pro-Trump, hate law enforcement magistrate in America had to say, yes, here is your search warrant. And by the way, Donald Trump, you know, described this to the public as they busted down the doors in the middle of the night. Absolute lie, typical of Donald, who lies as easily as you and I breathe. Michael Cohen himself said they knocked on the door, they were polite, they were very professional. Well, the speculation that I have seen focused on the payment of $130,000 to Stormy Daniels and questions about where did this money come from? Is it the campaign funds? Is it Trump's money? What's the criminal issue here? Well, there are a bunch of issues that arise here. First of all, uh, let me go to the agreement that attorney Michael Cohen, who literally went to the worst accredited law school in America, the absolute bottom of the pile accredited law school, uh, he drafted this agreement. I'm not a lawyer, but I taught at a law school for eight and a half years to third-year law students. It is one of the worst drafted agreements I've ever seen in my life. I've drafted non-disclosure agreements for people I've hired. It brings up all sorts of irrelevant material. It talks about not disclosing any other children Donald Trump has or abortions he may have paid for. Now, that suggests that what Cohen did was he took a boilerplate agreement or an agreement he had used with another woman. And remember, Steve Bannon has said there are hundreds of women. And knowing Donald? We think that was probably hyperbole. I don't think that was probably hyperbole. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Knowing Donald as I have for 30 years, there are many many other women out there. Mm -hmm. And this distinctly raises the question of did Donald Trump at some point pay for an abortion as we saw the number two Republican National Committee fundraiser did in a deal Michael Cohen brokered. And the woman who was pregnant, a former uh, Playboy model, got over a million dollars. I wonder what the, uh, you know, pro-life community will do out I take it back. I know what they're going to do. If it comes out, Donald paid for an abortion or abortions. Well, that was then, and Donald has repented, and and he has seen the error of his ways, and he has asked God for forgiveness, and they'll ignore the fact that Donald Trump, when asked uh, what you've asked God for forgiveness for, said, 
I've never asked God for forgiveness. Why would I do that? I've never done anything that required forgiveness. Now, to go back to the legal issues that you yes. raised. Well, first of all, there's a can obvious, the obvious one is a campaign finance violation. If this money was paid a few days before the election to prevent the issue from coming up, that's a campaign finance violation. Unfortunately, the Federal Election Commission is a useless organization with no backbone. Secondly, there may well be a gift tax crime, which I have reported on. Cannot give someone else money of more than, at the time of this uh, uh, settlement, $15,000 a year. Uh, so if it was Melania participating, $30,000, <laughs> without filing a gift tax return. And while there is an agreement on the cover here uh, that they were really settling litigation, that's pretty dubious. Thirdly, if this was done to cover up a crime, this could be an act in the furtherance of a conspiracy. And remember, under American law, conspirators don't have to ever even meet one another. All they have to do is take one single action that advances the crime and not renounce. Where the money came from is another interesting issue. Just before we started speaking, Michael Cohen indicated to reporters through his spokesman that he would take the Fifth Amendment on any and all questions regarding Stormy Daniels and payoffs. Well, that raises a, another question here. Will Donald Trump, who is the client, waive attorney-client privilege? After all, if nothing wrong was done, why wouldn't he waive attorney-client privilege and say, come look at the records? On the other hand, if he won't waive attorney-client privilege, and he's indicated he's very upset that his lawyer's office was raided, what does Donald Trump have to hide? The most likely explanation for the payment and the agreement is that at some point, Donald Trump created a slush fund to pay off women. He put Michael Cohen in control of it as his lawyer and basically said, I don't want to hear about this stuff, just get rid of them. That's what we're most likely to find out at the end of the day. You know more about tax law than a lot of people, and you certainly know more about Trump's taxes than a lot of people. I've heard you say on MSNBC that twice before, Trump has face tax charges, which I didn't know about. Uh, let's just go back a step. What's Trump's history with the IRS, and, and where do we stand? What's the potential exposure right now? Well, Donald Trump confessed in the early 80s to sales tax cheating in New York, and Mayor Ed Koch said he should spend 15 days in jail for it, although he didn't name him. Uh, and that was after that that, of course, Donald Trump began saying Ed Koch was the worst mayor anybody ever met. Donald had two civil trials, not criminal trials, for tax fraud. He lost both of them. He reported on his 1984 uh, city, uh, city, state, and we know federal because under New York law, New York state return and federal return are virtually identical, that he had a consulting business with no revenue but $600,000 of expenses. He had no receipts, no documents, nothing to back it up. So, of course, he lost those, and he got very tough opinions from judges about his conduct. Donald Trump has gone to extraordinary lengths that I detail in my book, The Making of Donald Trump, that came out in 2016, to hide from auditors records so that he could rip off the New York City government for several million dollars a year. I mean, really incredible series of steps, and I go through every one of them. Uh, Donald Trump is a cheat. You know, we know that he cheats on his wife. We know that he cheats on workers he won't pay. We know that he cheats on vendors. Anybody who thinks he doesn't cheat on his taxes just hasn't thought it through. But we have so severely cut the Internal Revenue Service budget that 
we're not auditing people with very, very complicated tax returns. And furthermore, there is a very strong tendency when you are wealthy and have connections to the right lawyers to turn these things into civil matters where you just pay a penalty and promise not to commit the crime you were committing without a criminal charge. Given his the history of his tax uh, what cheating. Should we, cheating. What is his current exposure? What, what are they? What's the FBI likely to find in Michael Cohen's office that might be relevant? Well, we know from the drafting of the Stormy Daniels agreement that he's just not a very good lawyer. He's sloppy and doesn't do work like he should, as you would expect from someone who went to the worst accredited law school in America. <laughs> and so. Uh, they're likely to find evidence of tax fraud, of money laundering, of wire fraud, of mail fraud. You know, you use uh, wire bank transfers for a corrupt purpose, you've committed a felony. You send a letter in the mail to further a crime, you've committed a felony. And every time you send something, you've committed a felony. In some circumstances, not all, we have extended this to email and other telecommunications. Well, as we should. I mean, what's that's just the modern version of the post office. Yeah. So uh, I think that the Cohen has substantial exposure probably for uh, tax crimes, mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy. Uh, I would expect the prosecutors will try to bring against him a racketeering charge. And if they can show that his law firm and maybe involving his father's, father-in-law's business and some other things are a racketeering enterprise, they can dangle life in prison in front of him. And it's basically if you can deliver us uh, somebody bigger... Uh, you'll get little to no prison time. And if you can't, um, you know, say goodbye to the rest of the world. By the way, uh, when the big Rudy Giuliani trials were brought 25 years ago and fat Tony Salerno, the head of the Gambino family, went to prison for life in a racketeering case, one of the specified charges was the purchase of concrete from a mob company owned by the heads of the Genovese and Gambino crime families. And Fat Tony Salerno, one of those two guys, went to prison for life and died in prison, uh, in part because of the concrete he sold to Donald Trump. David K. Johnston, his new book is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. David, you're the best. Well, thank you very much. The news from Korea. On Sunday, the South Korean government said that North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, said he would abandon his nuclear weapons if the United States agreed to formally end the Korean War and promise not to invade his country. For comment, we turn to Bruce Cummings. He's written many books, including The Korean War, A History, and North Korea, Another Country. He writes for The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The Nation, and he teaches at the University of Chicago. Bruce Cummings, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's start with a little history. Why did North Korea develop nuclear weapons? Well, the U.S. put nuclear weapons into South Korea in 1958. Uh, Honest John missiles. Uh, a couple of years later, nuclear landmines uh, that weigh about 60 pounds and can actually be put in a jeep and carried around, deposited north of Seoul, that kind of thing. And so I think ever since the U.S. uh, put hundreds of nuclear weapons into South Korea, the North Koreans have tried to come up with a a deterrent. 
for decades, they built underground. So they have about 15,000 facilities. Uh, almost their entire military is underground in caves, in mountains. Uh, it was their only recourse since they didn't have nuclear weapons. Uh, George H.W. Bush removed all battlefield nuclear weapons uh, from around the world in 1991, including Korea. But every president uh, kind of prides themselves on sending B-1 nuclear-capable bombers along the Korean coast. Obama did it many times. Trump has done it. And uh, Trident submarines are also, they're basically uh, uh, killing machines that could wipe out North Korea in a few hours. Uh, with their nuclear weapons. So the North has always been trying to get a deterrent, and it, it finally succeeded, busting off an atomic bomb in 2006, a very small one, and then doing a number of other tests. And, and last September, they detonated what uh, seems to have been a hydrogen bomb uh, way much larger than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. A little more history. Why was there a war in Korea in the early 50s. What was the Korean War about? The Korean War is one of the most vexed in our history in that if you look at high school and college textbooks, they just run it as Stalin telling Kim Il-sung to invade in 1950. But the war had origins going back into the 1930s when Korea was a colony of Japan. And Kim Il-sung and his friends who set up the North Korean government in 1948, uh, fought the Japanese for a decade uh, as guerrillas in, in the, the most uh, forbidding circumstances imaginable in Manchuria, where winter temperatures get down to 40 below zero. And the Japanese, uh, after their fashion, uh, found Koreans to chase down Kim Il-sung. Allegedly, they killed his first wife. And that set up a, a terrible nationalist dynamic in Korea after the Japanese left, whereby uh, you had the Soviet-supported regime in the North made up of former guerrillas uh, and the American-supported South with the entire uh, army high staff or command uh, being people who fought with the Japanese. Americans never understood this dynamic. Uh, they posted the very man who tried to kill Kim Il-sung in the 1930s to command the 38th parallel uh, in the summer of 1949. So it, it was fundamentally a civil war, but because of it came at the height of the Cold War, it, it generally was never seen, at least not uh, by most Americans, as a, a war similar to the Vietnam War. But it, it was a very similar war. And it, it demonstrates how easy it is to get into a war. Truman, President Truman thought it would be over very, over very quickly when he sent American troops in in June 1950. And here we are today with uh, Justin Armistice holding the peace 65 years after the war, uh, the hot war ended. A little more background. How would you describe the regime in North Korea today? What's life like in the North for ordinary Koreans? Uh, well, it's a lot better than it was 20 years ago when they had a famine caused by about 40% of their arable land being flooded in kind of a tsunami, really, of of rain. Maybe 600 to 700,000 people died. Our papers always say it was 2 million, but careful demographic studies have shown it was pretty awful, but not 2 million. 
really the economy fundamentally collapsed in the 1990s. Uh, their industries weren't working. Their energy regime uh, was gone. Uh, and then came the floods and, and the famine. Now their economy is actually good by North Korean standards. It grew about 4% last year. But Kim Jong-un uh, has uh, really tried to begin creating a, a middle class, at least in the urban areas, and especially Pyongyang. So there are, there are many markets now. People dress in, in a great variety of clothing, unlike the old proletarian clothing. A lot of people have private cars now. I was supposed to go to Pyongyang last September for uh, a visit. I haven't been there for many years, but I was prevented by President Trump's uh, embargo of all American travel to North Korea. Uh, however, a friend of mine went uh, last summer and said he was just flabbergasted by the changes in, in Pyongyang, uh, so much new building and new construction. And the South Korean President uh, Moon his overall scheme for North Korea is to reconcile with it, uh, not unify with it, but proceed with reconciliation and sort of rebuild the North Korean economy road by road, uh, bridge by bridge, uh, business by business. That That's really what's uh, behind this, and it's what's attracting uh, Kim Jong-un. It's not just the Trump administration that <clears throat> that's deeply skeptical about North Korean promises. The mainstream media uh, has been saying, you know, don't don't trust uh, trust King Jong Un. Uh, and when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson visited Seoul a year ago, he said North Korea has a history of violating one agreement after another, and it would be foolish to trust them now. I, I wonder if you agree. No, I don't. And uh, our mainstream media. Uh, including the paper of record, the New York Times, gets this stuff wrong all the time. The first major agreement uh, made in 1994 under Bill Clinton froze North Korea's plutonium, all of it, for eight years under U.N. inspection. The whole facility was sealed, closed-circuit cameras uh, all over the place. So they had no plutonium until 2002. And under the prodding of Kim Dae-jung, the South Korean president who came in in 1998 and started the reconciliation with the North, the Clinton administration moved to buy out North Korea's medium and long-range missiles. The general who ran the conglomerate making those missiles came to the White House in October 2000, uh, and Madeleine Albright uh, went to Pyongyang two weeks later to do this missile deal. But everybody's forgotten that because uh, the 2000 election ended up in the Supreme Court, and Five people decided George Bush would be president, and Bush came in uh, and did everything he could to mess up uh, our agreements with North Korea. Uh, I don't have time to go into all the details, but John Bolton and Dick Cheney in particular were determined to uh, not proceed with the missile deal uh, and to kill the uh, framework agreement that froze North Korea's plutonium. And the main reason they did this was that North Korea is not a threat to the United States, uh, certainly not then, uh, but it's a very useful foil for China, which Cheney and Bush and the others, of course, saw as a looming threat. Uh, so when North Korea blows off an atomic bomb or, or, or tests a missile, uh, we put more anti-missile batteries into the Far East. Uh, we try to weld together South Korea, Japan, and the U.S. in a tight alliance against China. Uh, and basically, uh, 
uh, Kim Jong Un and, and his father Kim Jong Il uh, in the early, early 2000s were uh, a very nice foil for what the Bush administration wanted to do, and of course Bush put them into the axis of evil. Yeah, uh, I, I really don't blame the North Koreans for moving in the direction that they did after 2002 because they were in the crosshairs uh, of the preemptive doctrine if if the Iraq war had gone to a quick conclusion. So North Korea has said it will abandon its nuclear weapons in exchange for uh, an agreement with the United States that we will not invade. Seems like a great idea, but how do we get from here to there? What are the first steps? Well, when uh, General Cho, the fellow who ran their missile conglomerate, came to Washington in 2000, he signed an agreement with President Clinton that neither side, neither North Korea nor the United States, would have hostile intent toward the other. This was a solemn diplomatic agreement, uh, very much like what North Korea appears to want again uh, in 2018. And uh, the Bush people acted as if uh, it had never been signed, never been even written. I remember reading the North Korean press at the time, and they said, how is it that people can just tear up diplomatic agreements like that? Uh, I'm not, of course, suggesting that North Korea is faultless in all this, quite, quite the contrary. But the fact is, we already signed an agreement saying that we would not have hostile intent toward North Korea, which implies that we're not going to invade it or try to overthrow the regime. Right. What I'm skeptical about is what kind of an agreement we could give North Korea, what kind of a statement we could give them uh, that would convince them that we're sincere about it this time. Uh, I imagine it would have to come in the context of uh, diplomatic relations finally being opened uh, between Pyongyang and Washington, and guarantees uh, both by South Korea and the U.S. that that they would not try regime change uh, or, or to invade the North. How much can be accomplished by South Korea working with North Korea and how much has to be the work of the United States and, I guess, China? Well, certainly China has to be a part of uh, ending the war in Korea and getting a peace agreement since it signed um, the armistice agreement, and South Korea didn't. There are only three signatories, China, the U.S., and North Korea. But I, I think that a, a real tension exists, uh, more hidden now than open, between Seoul and Washington. Uh, Moon Jae-in is very committed to moving forward quickly to reconcile with North Korea and help rebuild their economy, uh, get rid of their nukes, and so on. I, I think, uh, generally speaking, the foreign policy establishment in Washington agrees with John Bolton, who said that North, uh, South Korea is like putty in the hands of the North Koreans. They think the South Koreans are rushing forward too quickly. Uh, a former high State Department official in the Obama administration said they're running off the, uh, the bridge or off the cliff like lemmings. Uh, that's a, a kind of hidden aspect of this, and I think it's probably going to become prominent unless uh, Donald Trump somehow turns into a big supporter of uh, President Moon. Last question. If we get a treaty ending the Korean War, would you support giving Donald Trump the Nobel Peace Prize? No, I, I think uh, it would be much better to give uh, the Peace Prize to uh, President Moon and President Kim, or Chairman Kim. Uh, the North and South Koreans are doing much more to move this uh, peace process forward than Trump is. I mean, he was just a few months ago screaming that he was going to totally destroy North Korea. 
I actually don't think Trump has the slightest idea of uh, the nature of the Korean conflict, uh, how deep it, it, it has run, how long it has been going on. I'll just say this. If he gets the Nobel Peace Prize, then anything is possible. <laughs> okay. Bruce Cummings. Bruce, thanks so much for talking with us today. Nice talking to you, John. Now it's time to talk about James Comey, the former FBI director whose book, A Higher Loyalty, is a bestseller. On Monday, the New York Times revealed that special counsel Robert Mueller's questions for Donald Trump include several about his firings of Comey. Presumably, Mueller is pursuing an obstruction of justice case. For comment on Comey in his book, we turn to Elizabeth Drew. She's a Washington journalist and author of the book, Washington Journal Reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's Downfall. She wrote about Hillary Clinton's campaign memoir, What Happened for the Nation. She also writes for the New York Review, The New Republic, and other publications. Elizabeth Drew, welcome to the program. I'm happy to be here. Well, the heart of Comey's book is his account of the campaign and that famous announcement that he was reopening the FBI investigation of Hillary Clinton's email 11 days before Election Day. You say the book's explanation of why he did that is different from what he's been saying in the interviews for his book tour. Uh, please explain the differences. Well, I, what I did was not only read the book, but I watched him all week. Yeah. To see, uh, and I was very surprised because uh, he contradicted himself in a number of respects in the book. You're right, 90% of that book is his life and uh, his previous cases, and then like the last 10% are, are the campaign. So in the book, he said that the reason he had announced it, uh, that he was reopening the uh, investigation, was because he was so worried that he assumed Hillary would win, because that's what the polls were saying. And uh, if I may interpolate as I go, it, query whether the director of the FBI should be a cephologist in the word of people who, you know, track the polls and guess elections. Anyway, he assumed she'd win, and he said that, therefore, if she won and he hadn't said that she was under investigation, her whole presidency would be uh, suspect or delegitimized. So he was only thinking of her. Then in, on the book tour, I heard him give uh, a couple of other reasons which were that he and uh, Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, had said that the case was closed, and then it wasn't. And so, you know, what was he to do? He simply had to announce it was reopened. And then the third one was that the whole Justice Department and FBI would be under suspicion if uh, they granted it to uh, Hillary because it would put them all under suspicion. He didn't want to do that to his beloved FBI and the Justice Department. So which was it? You know, it was a shifting rationale. My own view was you have to start earlier. This started, as you know, John, when a bunch of uh, emails was found on the laptop of Anthony Weiner. This gets a little wild here. He was the, was the husband of Huma Abedin, uh, Hillary's closest aide and close, close friend and confidant. They were married then, but... Uh, Wiener had this unfortunate habit of sending uh, to young people pictures of his parts uh, erect. And uh, so he was being investigated. He'd been caught at it. He was being investigated, and they found 
all these emails. Now, my own view is that he said both that he had and that he hadn't gotten a warrant by the time that he said a case had been reopened. So whichever it was, I couldn't see why he didn't get a warrant. And they couldn't, maybe they couldn't get through all the emails, but a quick rifling through the beginning, the middle, the end, would have signaled to them what it was, as these were copies of emails that had already been examined. And they could have spared themselves the whole agony and the argument over whether or not he cost Hillary the election. The difference in the three final states that made the difference, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, the whole difference that all the, with all three combined was 80,000 votes. So a lot of factors could go into that. And my, again, if, if I think if Hillary had been a stronger candidate, she wouldn't have been so vulnerable to that announcement. But she was a strong candidate, as people thought. And so she was vulnerable to whatever happened. But he wasn't the only reason she lost. A lot of people have been disturbed by the inconsistency or the unequal treatment of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Donald Trump was also under, in Donald Trump's campaign was also under investigation for right. Russian interference. James Comey did not feel obligated to reveal that. He has some explanations. Remind us what they are and what do you think of them? His explanation is that it really wasn't Trump yet. And it wasn't the campaign. He said we were looking at a few individuals to see uh, if they were playing with Russia. So he said it was much too early to announce it. And normally, the normal practice is the Justice Department and the FBI never announce when they're investigating someone. So he went by the book. I think the difference is he went by the book with Trump. But with Clinton, he got himself into this situation but he was the one, you said, I think you have to connect it with, he was the one who announced that she had been investigated and they weren't going to bring charges. Now, normally the role of the FBI is to investigate and recommend to the uh, Justice Department whether they should prosecute or not. But it's the Justice Department that makes that decision. And Comey took it upon himself to not only investigate, but make the decision and then give these extra ex cathedra comments on how Hillary's people, she and her people had been very reckless in handling the material. And that was totally out of line. You don't do that. And so he said he had to take it from the Justice Department because Ms. Lynch had met with members of the famous uh, meeting at the tarmac yeah. when, when uh, Bill Clinton went on to her airplane, which was a foolish thing to do. Nobody knows what happened in that conversation. I seriously doubt he said, no, you're not going to prosecute my wife, are you? I really don't think he'd be that dumb. He was just probably thought he could just charm her. Yeah. In any in any event, so that was the reason. But he went way beyond the uh, the norms of the uh, way these things are handled. And normally, what would happen? Let's, so Loretta Lynch took herself out of it, and she said, "Okay, this happened, so I won't get in on the decision to prosecute." Normally, that then goes to the deputy attorney general or to the head of the criminal division. But Comey saying afterwards, his rationale in the book was that any, any decision by any part of the Justice Department would be, would be, could be tainted or considered tainted. So he was going to take care of it himself. So I think from then on, he just had a, you know, his own view of how to handle this. Both of them were not right. I don't think he was being partisan. Let me just say that. I don't think he was being pro-Trump. 
I don't think there was anything in him to be pro-Trump. I think it was just he got it right with, when he handled Trump, and he didn't get it right when he handled Hillary. I don't disagree with what he did about Trump. Uh, I just think they could have handled the uh, discovery of Hillary's emails in some way that would have told them more quickly, uh, hey, these are old emails, and so there's nothing here. But he was also under a lot of internal pressure from the, some agents in the, in the Washington Bureau and many agents in the New York Bureau who were saying, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to make a new investigation, you've got to get it out there, or we're going to leak it. And Rudy Giuliani was saying, oh, you can't, you know, something big is coming. So how did he know it was being leaked to him? So he was kind of cornered by his own people, Comey was. That's a management problem. That's not a legal principle. Yeah. And then there's the question of impeachment. Comey had some, uh, I would say, remarkable views of impeachment that uh, that he's expressed uh, during the publicity tour for the book. You know a lot about the impeachment of Richard Nixon. It's the central event in your book, Washington Journal, reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's downfall. Remind us what Comey has said about impeaching Trump. Well, he said two different things. Again, in the interview with George Stephanopoulos, which was the first one, it was that Sunday night, an hour-long interview on ABC, and he said to George, who asked if he thought Trump should be impeached, he said, no, that would be a cop-out. It's much more important that the American people take it upon themselves to vote him out of office. Well, this showed no understanding of the point of impeachment which the founders put in there, you know, the presidency is Article 2 in the Constitution. And the first part of Article 2 is impeachment. And then and then they get to the powers of the presidency. They felt so strongly about it. And the point was to have recourse during a president's uh, time in office if he is breaking the law or doing, you know, terrible things so bad that it calls for an impeachment. Otherwise, there's no recourse. So he must have been told by some people that he got it wrong, because the next time Stephen Colbert asked him about it, and he changed it, and he said, well, the facts and the law will decide whether or not there's impeachment, but he just wants the American people to think hard about our values. That was, that's what he kept saying throughout the book, that that was really the point of his book. And I think the problem is, I'm sounding pretty harsh on him, and I, I'm not as harsh as many of the critics, was that he was writing a revenge book. Because he, you know, he was so stunned and shocked and angered at having his really quite long and quite honorable public career cut short by Trump because Trump was mad at him. So he was getting even, and that's very problematic. The question whether he should, he's a witness in the investigation, in Robert Mueller's investigation. So should a witness be writing a book? And, you know, people will resent him for making money off of stuff that he owed the system, et cetera, et cetera. So I think he just... I think Comey is actually an honor, basically an honorable man who played the angles a bit too much, and he was just kept getting it wrong. I think there's a bit of a tin ear, too, with him. You said you called this, the idea of writing a revenge book was improper because Comey is at least potentially a witness uh, in Robert Mueller's case. Exactly what kind of witness is he, and what is the crime that he may have witnessed? Well, I said it was. they were problematic. Revenge books are problematic. I didn't say... There, there are those who think it was improper. I didn't get to that point, but I, I understand that argument, that he just should have waited. But, uh, you know, and it certainly looks like it. Who's, I, what I stayed away from was his you know, mental mo- motives. We can't know. 
you know, what he was really thinking. But it certainly, to many people, will look like, well, he was just trying to cash in on this, or he wanted to get even with the president. He would be a witness because one of the uh, major charges, if there are going to be any, or maybe the major charge, if they don't find collusion, which I think they will, because I think it's there, but anyway, was that a charge that Miller is very likely to bring, it appears, is obstruction of justice. And a major factor in that was the firing of Kobe. So he is a witness in that, and he is a witness in this series of events that he put in his memos of the president doing various things that were trying to block the investigation or block parts of it, telling his, you know, Trump telling Comey to uh, please let it go with Flynn and a couple of times. And so uh, the things he wrote in his memos was really part of, part of, the, uh, part of the inquiry into whether tr- Trump should be called for obstructing justice. Now, uh, stay with me. An impeachable offense is not the same thing as a crime. Something can not be a crime, but be an impeachable offense. For instance, Nixon was uh, cited for obstruction of justice, but you don't have to prove intent in an impeachable offense. For a crime, you have to prove intent. And all that Comey, all that uh, Mueller can do is look for crimes. That's his, uh, that's his assignment. But you could separate, if, if Congress were of a mind to impeach Trump, which they are not, and I don't know whether they ever will be, uh, it depends on the Republicans, then you wouldn't have to prove intent. But in any event, Kobe's, uh, the way Trump, Kobe was approached by the president, you know, a couple of times to leave, uh, leave Flynn out of this and then being fired. And as you remember, the president said to Lester Holt on television, it, the Russia thing was on his mind when he fired Comey. Yeah. So it's pretty clear to me that there's that there's a obstruction. They're both criminal and uh, impeachable. Elizabeth Drew, she wrote about Comey's book for The New Republic, and I wrote about it for The Nation. Her highly relevant book is Washington Journal, reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's downfall. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. It was fun. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.